I love origin stories. Whether it be from biographies of significant historical figures. You read these things, you learn about Abraham Lincoln and how his traumatic childhood informed his presidency. Or you read about Martin Luther and how he dedicated his life to the Lord in an instant when he was stuck out in a lightning storm. Or you read about Bill Gates and how he dropped out of Harvard to found Microsoft. And I love those types of origin stories, but my favorite origin stories are superhero origin stories. So you think of Superman who gets shipped off of his dying planet and he comes to Earth with all of these crazy powers and he's an alien and an outsider. Or you think of Captain America, a five foot four, 95 pound runt who was bullied his whole life. And then he comes by super strength and he gets shipped off into World War II to fight the Nazis. But the best one, the best superhero origin story is Spider-Man's origin story. So Peter Parker, a teenager, gets bitten by a radioactive spider and he gains the ability to climb walls like a spider. And he gets spider-like agility, whatever that means, no idea. But his Uncle Ben is killed by a criminal that he could have stopped. And he learns the valuable lesson that sets him on that hero life. With great power comes great responsibility. I love these stories. Whether they're real or whether they're fictional, we get this combination of natural gifting with life circumstances of nature and nurture that come together to form these extraordinary human beings. Today we're going to talk about origins and we're going to learn a little bit about the origins of humanity. We're going to learn about the origins that make us the way that we are and the only way that we can overcome these origins. So let's dive in Romans chapter 1. If you want to open your Bibles, you can camp out in Romans 5. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but I think uh, to familiar text. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. Follow along with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, this incredibly meaningful, significant, significant and somewhat difficult text, Father, we, we humbly admit to you, as we've already done in this service, that we are sinners and that in our own power we have no ability to see or to grasp what you have here in your word given us so graciously. And Father, we echo Tim's prayer. Um, My words, any wisdom, any argument that I'm trying to make are completely meaningless if they're not founded and grounded in your word. So Father, help me to teach. Give everyone in the congregation listening ears to hear, to learn, to take in your word, to have it illuminated to them by the Holy Spirit. God, we know that we can't do this. We pray that you would do us, do it in us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we dig into Romans 5, let's very, very quickly remember how we got here. So Romans 1 and 2 make it very clear that we have a problem, namely sin. God is holy. We are sinners. And so we are separated from him. And that combination of His holiness and our sin does not bode well for us. It means that we'll be judged, found guilty, and condemned. Romans 3 tells us that we can be saved or justified so that we don't actually receive that condemnation. And that salvation comes by grace through faith. There's no rule you can follow, no law you can keep. There aren't enough good things that you can do to save yourself. You can't even get close. The only hope you have is to put your faith in Jesus. In fact, Romans 4 shows us that that's actually how it's always been. Abraham, David, these pillars of Judaism, they weren't saved by law keeping. They were saved by faith. Everyone who is saved is saved by faith. And the last time we were in Romans, we looked at the beginning of chapter 5. And so far in this chapter, we've seen that in Christ, we have peace with God. Where there was war between that holy God and us, a sinful people, there is now peace for those who are in Christ. And Tim gave us this great illustration uh, where we were previously on a no-fly list. Before we showed up to the airport, they weren't letting us on the plane. And now not only have we been removed from the no-fly list, but we've been given an overabundance of frequent flyer miles that we haven't earned. We didn't get ourselves off the no-fly list. We didn't purchase our frequent flyer miles. In other words, we didn't do anything to justify ourselves, and we didn't do anything to put ourselves in right standing with God. Jesus did that for us. Jesus alone saves. And now as we come to verse 12, this passage that we're about to study, it serves as sort of a wrapping up or a conclusion 
to this section that's really been from the beginning of Romans, and it's been about justification. And I, I personally have to admit, this is it's a pretty difficult text. And I actually feel like the main argument of what Paul is saying is pretty clear, but there are a lot of secondary implications to the points that he makes in his main arguments, and some of those are pretty tough theologically. So I'm going to telegraph what the sermon is going to look like a little bit. I'm going to walk us through what I think is his main argument, because I think that's really clear. Just walk right through the text, make the same argument that I think Paul is making. Then, Lord willing, I'm going to take a few minutes at the end to address just one. One, and there are many, many more, but we're going to address one of the questions that I think you might come away asking if you're paying close attention to this text. And I can't say for sure, but I'm going to guess that this is probably not the last sermon that you're going to hear in Romans 5, because there's going to be a lot left on the table. Um, Okay, so we have this problem. Sin. What's the origin story behind sin? Paul thinks it's important because sin's origin story is our origin story. Romans 5 verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. If you read your Bible closely and you pay particular attention to Paul, you'll notice that he sometimes in his epistles, goes all over the place. Paul has never met a run-on sentence that he didn't like. So in verse 12, he's going to start to make his argument that will actually be the main argument of this passage. He's going to start it, but he's going to divert, and he's not going to finish that argument. He's not going to clearly and succinctly state that argument until we get all the way to verse 18. So he says, just as sin came into the world, Normally, what you would expect to follow a just-as statement like this, you would expect a so-also. Something like, just as the Packers uh, drafted heavily on defense in the offseason, so also the Bears have stacked their offense. Something like that. Oftentimes, that language is used to make a comparison statement about two things. And Paul is going to finish his just as statement that he started in verse 12, but not quite yet. So stay with me. We're going to go through it the way that he put pen to paper. And keep in mind that he thinks that these next verses are so important that he pauses that main argument, a really good main argument, to go off on this tangent. So just as sin came into the world through one man, that's what he's unpacking, sin, its origins, its effects. So who is the one man through through whom sin came? Well, of course, it's Adam. Scripture tells us that Adam was the first human that God created. Genesis 2, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So God creates man He creates Adam, and when he gets finished, he looks at all of creation and he says, this is very good. All of creation, including 
Adam. Very good. Paul tells us that sin came through Adam, who was very good. So how did this happen? Genesis 2, 15-17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you look at the timeline here, Eve is not around. She hasn't been created yet. God gives this command to Adam. And that, of course, doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to Eve, but it was given to Adam. Then in Genesis 3.6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Both of the humans, the only humans on the planet at this point, break this one commandment that God has given them. So why does Paul say that sin came into the world through one man? Because Adam was the head. The head of all of humanity. He was the one that God put in charge who he gave dominion over the garden. And he is the one to whom God gave the commandment. And of course, he's the one who broke the commandment. He was the head of humanity. Hang on to that idea of headship because we're going to come back to it. It's going to be really, really important. So Paul clearly thinks that Adam was a real person who really did what Genesis said he did. He's not a, he's not a myth. He's not some character made up to be able to tell bedtime stories. He's a real guy who really did eat of the tree he was commanded not to eat. And that had real consequences in our world. So Adam brought sin into the world. You see, he was made good. And he was created to live forever. My family and I went a couple of weeks ago to see the, um, I'm not making any editorial comments about the quality of it, the new Lion King movie, the new Lion King movie, that is a remake of the great cartoon from the early 90s. Um, I think I made my editorial comment. Um, so Mufasa explains to Simba, this is good stuff here, good to help us with our lesson. He explains to Simba, he says, everything exists in a delicate balance, a circle of life. He says, we eat the antelope, and then we become the grass, and then the antelope eats the grass. Great circle of life, right? That's not wrong in a certain sense, but that's not how things were originally intended to be. If Adam hadn't sinned, it would be the great line of life, not the circle of life. Death is not natural. Disease is not natural. Natural disasters are not natural. These are all a product of Adam's sin. Before he sinned, none of those things were a part of our world. So Adam's sin came to all creation. It came to us. His name, Adam, it means humanity. Couldn't be any clearer. He is our head. Sin, death, disease came into the world through one man. Not just death, not just disease. Worse 
than both of those things, Adam's sin brought with it separation from God. After Adam sinned, God removed Adam and Eve from the garden where they had enjoyed such a sweet fellowship with Him. And that separation was something that would also spread to all of Adam's offspring, to all of us. And that's the origin story of all mankind. So who are we in Adam? We're sinners. We sin. We are sinners. We are sinners in Adam. Now, are there any hypochondriacs in here? Anybody? You get a headache, think to yourself, I wonder if I have a tumor. Is it just me? Nobody else? Alright. When you look at your life, and you look at the mistakes that you've made, and the problems that you have, if you ever ask yourself, is there something wrong with me? The answer is yes. There is something very wrong with you and me and all of humanity. We are sinners and that is not a small problem. It's a grave problem and one that we in our own strength can't do a thing about. Paul continues in verses 13 and 14 which are kind of a a footnote on 12. He really wants us to understand this. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. This also serves as a little bit of an explanation on Romans 3.20, which says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. We're not saved by keeping the law, partly because sin isn't only about law-breaking, but it's more than that. We don't just sin, we are sinners. He wants to make sure that we understand this clearly. And what's his evidence of this? He says, because death was in the world before the law. If sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, then death is evidence of sin. All those people who existed from Adam to Moses, from the fall to when the law was given, are those folks still alive? No, they're all dead. So death reigned from Adam to Moses. Adam introduces sin. Moses introduced the law, but between the two, before there were any God-given laws to break, people still died. The consequences of sin were in full effect. But sin's not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? It can't mean that the effects of sin aren't felt because death. It echoes what he said in chapter 4, verse 15. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Remember, transgression doesn't mean just sin here. To transgress means to go beyond the boundaries of something. So in order to transgress, there must be a boundary or a line that you're crossing. And he's saying you can't transgress or violate a law when there is no law. The law is the boundary. Without the law, there is no boundary. You drive on the Autobahn where there is no speed limit, it'd be really weird to get a speeding ticket. And that's what he's saying in chapter 4, 
verse 15, and here in chapter 5, verse 13. Sin isn't counted in the strictest sense where there is no violated law, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its effect. Look at all the people who died before the law was given. That doesn't also mean that life was a moral free-for-all where there was no right and wrong. Right and wrong existed before the law. Verse 14. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, they died. Well, there's that word again, transgression. What boundary did Adam transgress? God gave Adam a clear commandment, don't eat the tree. He did it anyway. So Adam did have a law. So Adam was a law breaker. After Adam, no technical law breakers again until Moses. But the point that Paul is trying to make is the point that he's been making throughout Romans so far. It's stop thinking about the law. You're not condemned just because you broke the law. You're condemned because you're a sinner. And by the same token, you're not saved even if you could somehow keep the law. And then at the end of verse 14, we get this. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So the one who was to come is Jesus. What's a type? A type is a person or thing that foreshadows or prefigures something to follow. Well, how in the world was Adam a type of Jesus? They're quite different. We've seen about Adam that he brought sin and death into the world. And we know about Jesus that he breaks the power of sin and death. They seem like opposites. Look in verses 15 through 17. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the trespass here, Adam's sin, Adam's transgression, his violation of God's command that brought sin and death into the world. The free gift is the gift of salvation received by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul jumps into a comparison and contrast here between Adam and Jesus. If all died because of Adam's sin, how much more has grace abounded? The gift that those who have, uh, the gift that those who have faith in Jesus receive, is not like the results of the one man's sin. That result is death. We expect death. That's been true of all mankind throughout history. We have sin and we have death. We're all going to die. That's always been the case. Death is expected. It's even deserved. Grace is neither expected nor deserved. We deserve death because we're sinners. Not a single person who ever died could rightfully say, you know what, I don't deserve this. This is unjust. Death for sin is perfectly just. Death is our wage for sin. 
We're going to see that even more clearly in the next chapter. We get paid what we're owed. Grace? No, we, we don't deserve that. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. It's a gift. If we're comparing death from sin versus salvation by grace, grace is better not just because salvation is good and death is bad, but because grace is free and undeserved. When you work hard and you do a good job and you get a paycheck, do you think, what an incredible undeserved gift I've been given? No, you have a contract with your employer. You do the job. Your paycheck is what you deserve. It doesn't mean that you don't appreciate your job. It doesn't mean that you don't feel blessed by your job. But that doesn't mean that your paycheck is a gift or an act of grace. That's death. That's what we deserve. On the other hand, if a stranger that you have absolutely no relationship with walks up to you and gives you a check for your entire year's salary and says, well, you know, just because, you would be absolutely ecstatic. You would be blown away by that incredible grace shown to you. Same amount of money, but what's the difference? One is your wage, the other is a gift. One is deserved, the other isn't. Grace is better because it's undeserved, but it's also better because the results are better. Sin brings condemnation, not just death, but eternal judgment. That's what condemnation means here. But the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus brought justification. And remember what that means. When God looks at those who have been justified, He sees Jesus. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't condemn us to eternal judgment. He sees Jesus' righteousness instead of our sin. And we call that, fancy word, imputed righteousness. Christ doesn't make it so that we can do good things so that God then looks at us and says, look at the good things they're doing. I think I'll save them. Imputed righteousness means that Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. We become that through no work of our own. God looks at us and He sees Christ. Grace is not just better because it's undeserved and because its results are better. Grace is better because it's greater. Death and sin reign over all mankind, over all creation through Adam. Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death and sin reign in the flesh, but the abundance of grace means that we reign in life. Here, sin and death, like this, don't get me wrong, sin is serious, it condemns, I don't want to minimize sin in any way, I don't think you can do that in this passage, which we're going to see even more later, but when compared to the abundance of grace, here is sin and here is grace. God is about His glory, and He doesn't do things in half measure. There's no struggle between sin and grace. There's no war between the two where it's like, which one of these is going to win out? This isn't a movie of good versus evil where there's any suspense and uncertainty as to which side will win. Grace blows sin out of the water, and it's not even close. 
Those who receive this abundance of grace reign in life, reign in life through Jesus Christ. So what does this have to, I I pulled a Paul and I asked a question that I didn't answer. What does any of this have to do with being a type of Christ? So I started um, with the chunk of verses 15 through 17 with that question in mind. Adam is a type of Christ because Adam was a representative of all mankind. Adam is a representative of us in death. In the same way, Christ is a representative in life for those who put their faith in Him. And we call this federal headship. Both Adam and Christ representative heads. We Americans... We should appreciate and understand this, um, assuming that you all have had a civics course, I hope. Um, Why? Because that's exactly how our government works. We don't represent ourselves individually. We have representatives who are our federal heads. Adam and Christ are the same way. Adam negatively, Christ positively. So that's what that type means. So we finally get to Verse 18, which again is the main point of the whole passage. Paul's comparison and contrast of Adam and Jesus has been building up to this point. And he restates what he said in verse 12 and he finishes his thought. Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as sin came into the world through one man, so also life comes into the world through one man. The sin of Adam led to death and condemnation, but the righteousness of Jesus leads to life. Adam, our federal head in death, really messed things up. Jesus, our federal head in life, redeems us. Everyone who puts their faith in Him along with all of creation. Paul brought in sin and disease and death. Jesus has ushered in the cleansing of sin, the eradication of disease, the overturning of death, and He's made eternal life available to every sinner. Verse 19, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam violated the commandment given to him. He transgressed it. And by that disobedience, all of mankind were made sinners. Christ was obedient in every way possible. He lived a perfect life. He didn't sin in any way. He didn't violate a single commandment. He didn't transgress the law. He didn't do a single sinful thing. Period. That obedience, particularly His obedience on the cross, led to the faithful being accounted righteous. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law didn't increase sinful acts. That's not exactly what this means. The the law brought clarity to sinful acts. How would we know what it is to covet If we weren't told, thou shalt not covet. The law shows us our sin, but it has zero power to save. What it reveals is how much we need grace and how much grace we need. 
And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You're not going to save yourself by following rules or by being a good person. Only the grace of Jesus saves. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. This is good news. The bad news is that sin reigns in us, leading to death. That's our origin story. In the same way, grace might also reign through the righteousness of Christ, leading to our salvation, to eternal life. Bad news is, you are condemned. And that is bad news. The good news is that Jesus took that condemnation on himself in order that you might be saved. But this passage, at least in my mind, leaves us with some tough questions. And I want to hit just one of those very briefly. Entire volumes have been written on this subject that I'm going to cover in about three minutes. So there's a lot to read, um, and, and it may even gin up in you more questions. Okay, so the question is, what exactly does verse 12 mean? It's a little awkward. It says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's a weird verse. It almost seems redundant, which in and of itself wouldn't be out of the ordinary. I think that we get from that that sin came into the world through Adam. He violated the one command he was given, and now we get sin and death. We get that part. But what about death spread to all men because all sinned? You might be tempted to read this simply as Adam introduced death and sin into the world like some kind of disease. And so we all have the disease. And so we sin as a symptom of that disease. That's true. That's absolutely true. But it doesn't go far enough. I think the way that we're supposed to understand it is that we're to understand that we are sinners in Adam. We are guilty in Adam. We're not just guilty of the effects of Adam's sin, but we are guilty of Adam's sin. I think that's the right interpretation for two reasons, and I think those reasons are going to help us understand the significance of what Paul is getting at here. The first reason is the language. The way that we translate this phrase, because all sinned into English, it doesn't go far enough. The Greek word here would be better translated as because all sinned in Adam, or even more precise, because all sinned in one past action, namely Adam's transgression, his violation of the one commandment that God gave him. It's not just that we commit sinful acts. It's not just that we have this disease inherited from Adam that leads us to commit those sinful acts. That would be original sin. And original sin, it's, it's a real thing. It's a thing that is inherent in us that has marred our character and it will lead us to commit sins. But that's not only what Paul is talking about here. He's assuming something else, something deeper. The idea that we're also guilty of Adam's transgression, not just feeling the effects of it. This is called imputed sin. There's that word again. Adam's sin is imputed to us, so we are guilty of it too. 
This has to do with our objective legal standing before a holy, righteous judge, God. Imputed sin, it's not a quality internal to us like original sin. It's the objective reckoning of our guilt in Adam. When God looks at us, He doesn't just see our sin. He sees Adam's sin. And this goes back to the same idea of federal headship. Adam is our representative and we are guilty in him. We're not just guilty with him or because of him. We are guilty in him. And I know what you're thinking. It's the first thing I thought when, when this concept finally rang true with me. My first thought was, well, that's not fair. Adam screwed up and I have to pay the price for that? Now hold that thought for one second because it leads me to a second reason why I think imputed sin is what Paul is after here. The first reason is the language. The language, I think, by itself makes it clear. The second reason is that justification, the whole thing that Paul has been hammering through the first five chapters of Romans, justification doesn't make any sense without imputed sin. Remember what justification is based on. Justification is based on imputed righteousness. Christ's righteousness in us. If we are justified, when God looks at us, our objective legal standing with Him is different. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see Adam's sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. If imputed sin isn't a reality, then we don't need imputed righteousness. If there's no imputed sin, all we need is for Christ to jumpstart righteousness in us so that we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and save ourselves by our works. But we don't believe that. That's not biblical. That's not grace. Christ didn't die to make us better. He died to take our place. Let me say that again. Christ didn't die to make us better. He died to take our place. That is also federal headship. Christ is our representative in righteousness, in life. Christ, born of a virgin, not of Adam, very important, came into this world without imputed sin or original sin and he lived a perfect life and died to take our place doing for us what we are not capable in any way of doing for ourselves so if you think imputed sin is unfair how much more unfair is imputed righteousness and the way that we get it Jesus is the only person to ever walk the face of the earth who didn't deserve death. And he died so that we might live. The very basis of the righteousness imputed to us was the death of the only innocent person who ever lived. That's not fair. But I already said original sin and imputed sin, that, that's not the main point of the passage. I, I think that's secondary, but I think it, it's necessary for us to understand better the main point of the passage. Why is this helpful? Why do we want to spend time on this in the sermon? Well, if you don't understand your origin story, if you don't understand how deep our guilt 
goes, then you don't understand how desperate we are. Understanding the depth of our guilt and our desperation helps us appreciate, in some small measure, the lengths to which Jesus went to save us. When we understand how deep Adam's one trespass that led to condemnation for all men goes, then we can better appreciate that one act of righteousness that leads to justification and life. When we understand how deep our guilt is and we understand that God's grace abounded above and beyond that, greater than the sin that led to it, far greater, then we can understand what it is that God has done for us. Tim Keller has this quote that I've used before, and it's a great quote, so I'll probably keep using it. I'm going to just wear it out. He said, You are far worse than you think you are, but you are far more loved than you feel you are. Our origin story tells us that we are in a dire situation. We are far worse than we even think we are. We are desperate, condemned, but God's grace abounds. We are far more loved than we feel we are. And that love of Jesus far outweighs our guilt. Our, our culture wants us to believe that there's nothing wrong with us. The sin in your life, there's nothing wrong with that. The disordered desires that you have, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are your passions. That's who God made you to be. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need Jesus' righteousness because there's nothing in you that requires it. That is a lie straight from the devil. Satan wants us to believe that because if you don't think there's a problem, you won't seek the solution. There is something wrong with you. Be honest and admit that to yourself. The testimony of Scripture and all of human history tells us that there is something very, very wrong with us. Lying to ourselves and pretending that everything will be okay, okay will lead us straight to eternal death. There is something very wrong with all of us. But it's true that God didn't make us to be sinners. Adam made us that way. And God has provided the way out through His Son. His Son who came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death to atone and cover for our sins. God has made a way for us to no longer be in Adam, but to be in Christ. God showed His incredible love for us in this, in the depth of our sin, Adam's sin. He sent His Son to die for us. That's how much God loves us. And the grace offered in that act of love far exceeds the condemnation that we receive in Adam. Our origin story condemns us, but God has given us a new story in Jesus. Let's pray.